You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, do me a favor. Open up your Bibles to Luke 15 or open your app or however you look at God's Word this morning. Luke 15. As you will see very quickly, or if you're familiar with your Gospels, this is a familiar passage for sure. Luke 15, the prodigal son in particular. Really, Luke 15 is three parables from the greatest storyteller to ever walk the earth. Go figure. Three parables of the lost being found. Lost coin, the lost sheep, and in our passage this morning, the lost son. And I would argue, if you've studied this passage, the lost sons. That's a plural. Not just one. There's not just one son in this passage. There's two. But what I, want, I desire for us to do this morning as we get going is really quick. By the way, simple outline. I've got some lists that I'm going to throw at you and whatnot. I'm a simple guy. So simple outline. Hopefully you'll be able to follow this outline. But I, I desire for us to, to step into the story. To start off this morning by stepping into the story. To understand the context. It's good to do no matter what passage you're reading. But it's a good thing for us to do to understand what's taking place. This is what Jesus wanted his audience to do. That's the point of a parable. Jesus is telling an earthly story with a divine meaning that involved the audience listening in. It wasn't just some ambiguous story that sounded good, like there was a real reason for it. Unfortunately, this was typically lost on most, including his own disciples. But nonetheless, he wants his audience to figure out how the story connects to them. Who they are, if you will, in this parable. And now we get to be included. We get to place ourselves into the story. Certainly a good practice, as I've already mentioned, to do so as you read the Bible. Because the truth of God's word is just as important to us today as it was to the original audience. That's the wonderful thing about the word of God. It's not antiquated. It's not just, oh, it's kind of more truth for them than it is for us today. It matters. It means the same thing, if you will, to us. We need the truth. So I ask you to allow him to draw you into it so that as we end our time together today, you can examine your life in light of this amazing story. First of all, first off, let's step into the story and understand who the audience is that Jesus is hanging out with and speaking to. So let's start with verse 1 and 2 of the chapter. That helps us understand the context. Verse 1 of the chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The first group identified here, of course, are the tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors being the, the, the sinners on steroids. They're, they're the Jews who are traitors serving and working for the Roman government and extracting money from their own people, too much money. Jesus consistently and constantly attracted those who were considered outcasts, according to the religious leaders in particular of the time, which was the norm of Jesus' ministry, wasn't it? Wherever he went, the defiled, 
the dirty, the unholy, those ignorant of anything pure and holy showed up. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? These are the people that Jesus received and ate with, essentially telling them that he wants to make them his people. Isn't that what he's done with us this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ? He tells them to die to themselves, to pick up their cross, follow him and go and sin no more. Again, just like he does for us today. And Jesus' mission was to bring the lost out of the darkness and into the glorious light of his kingdom. But if we want a church that resembles Jesus' ministry, we need to make sure we are fully teaching what Jesus taught, which was this. Radical saving grace to the lost, absolutely, but also offensive biblical conviction to the religious. Like it wasn't one without the other which takes us to the next group in the audience that we see in this passage, the Pharisees and the scribes. Always in the background, maybe sometimes in the forefront, but always in the background, arms folded, grumbling, you know, just, just annoyed with this guy who's come on scene and claiming to be God himself. They are the practitioners and teachers of the law. They knew the law. They practiced the law. They never missed being in church. They gave exactly the right amount of money. And, and of course, they prayed faithfully, certainly in front of everybody, to make sure they, people saw them pray and how good they prayed and how wonderful they were. All good stuff. But they boast about outward appearances and not about what was in the heart. That's what they were all about. And for them, serving God was a major burden. Oh, I hope this isn't you this morning. For them, serving God was a major burden. Their duty to God was hard. It was joyless and loveless. And because they saw God, if you will, in the same way. They saw God in the exact same way. They saw God as, very being, as being hard and joyless and loveless, arms crossed, you know, waiting for them not to do things correctly or fully, not, not dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And, you know, this, this guy who stood off and they were doing everything they can to appease him, to please him, to, to, to be close to him, to make him happy. And, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. I hope you understand that this morning. And Jesus is telling this story with the hope of a real, genuine understanding of the extravagant nature of God's grace and love. That's the gist. That's the whole point of what he's trying to get across. He's using this parable to blow the minds of those who are listening about who God really is. And by the way, he's calling him a father, which was really unheard of in that day and age. They never perceived God as a father in that familiar relationship and, and element. So that's the audience. Now let's get to the characters of the story. Let's start by looking at the well-known younger son that we know so well, right? The, the prodigal son. Look at verses 11 through 16. Let me read these as we really get into God's word this morning. And he said, Jesus 
there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Delayed gratification wasn't in this guy's vocabulary. And he divided the property between them, the father did, which was incredibly rare for a father to do so, at great expense to him. He had to liquidate his assets in order to have money to give to him. Not many days later, the young son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there, he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. One of the most unclean animals, and of course for a good Hebrew boy, unheard of. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. In other words, he hit rock bottom. Exactly where all of us need to be in order to understand the true state of our being. The younger son here represents the tax collectors and sinners. That's why he's, that's his example. That's what he's trying to flesh out here. The immoral enjoying their wild living off in the far country or even right there in front of everybody. And I stand before you this morning to say, for many years, I was the younger son. This was me. The younger son epitomizes my story. Maybe it does for you this morning. Having grown up in Jesus-believing and faith-filled family that I am so thankful for, My dad is a student of the word. He's a teacher of the word. Lay pastor, if you will. Taught Sunday school for some 50 years or something like that. Remarkable man. At age seven, I personally chose Jesus as my savior. Remember it vividly. I was adopted and became God's son. God became my heavenly father. My mom actually had a intricate part in that, led me to the Lord at my bedside. Amazing. But around age 15, I began choosing the world. Little by little, doesn't happen overnight, I rejected the good father and embraced the world. I embraced that which stood in direct opposition to all that God was and wanted for me. So that when I graduated high school, I was so gone that I consciously did exactly what this younger son did. I consciously chose to leave my family and go to the far off country of the world. My idea, literally, this is the thought I had. If I'm going to rebel, man, I'm going to do it right. I knew what it was doing in particular to my mom to be around her. So I said, listen, I'm going to estrange myself from my family. I literally did that. I had that conscious choice. And by the way, this was back in the day with no phones and social media, and you can literally do that. Disappear, go off the grid, and I left until I soon found myself in the pigsty of the world. took me a time to realize it was a pigsty. I was lost, miserable. It's a key word I'm going to come back to here in a second. Miserable and vaguely remembering what once was. Peace. Love that we sang that this morning. I'm going to come back to that as well. Peace and rest at home. 
with the good father. But God, amen? But God, through specifically a faithful mom's love that that flowed from the love of the eternal father, a, a, a love that enabled her to never, ever give up on me. She prayed, she prayed some more, and she kept praying. Praying even in the middle of the night. My dad tells the story frequently that he would roll over in the middle of the night and hear my mom talking and roll over and realize that in the middle of the night, my mom wasn't sleeping. And instead of getting upset like I typically do when I wake up in the middle of the night, she took that time to pray. I don't know what she prayed for specifically, but my dad said, I guarantee, Garth, you are at the top of the list. And she prayed. I'm not sure what she prayed. She's with the Lord now. She passed away several years ago. She's with the Lord now. But I know what I pray currently for my prodigal daughter. I'd love to tell you that my kids are all walking with Jesus. They're not. This is what I pray for my prodigal daughter, who is in a far-off country as we speak right now. I pray that she's miserable. I pray she's miserable. Sin is fun, fun for a moment. Amen? Sin is pleasurable, as Scripture tells us, for a moment. But man, it leads to destruction. And I pray specifically that she would be miserable, just like the younger son became. It's easy to pray for comfort or safety or whatever. And let me just speak to maybe some parents or spouses that are sitting here this morning dealing with prodigal children. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. I stand here today with the privilege, though unworthy to do so, the privilege of preaching God's word because I say my mom did it, but the Lord through my mom's prayers drew me back and restored me. I'm a slow learner. It took me several years to realize just how miserable I was. But this is how we typically apply this story, isn't it? And it's right to do so. You know, someone believes in Jesus at one time, it's a genuine conversion, and and then walks away from him. They are the prodigal son or daughter or brother, sister, husband, wife, friend, relative, whoever it is. But this this parable is actually more so the idea of God the Father pursuing and finding those who have been chosen to be his, to be his sons and daughters, but are still lost. Which I think covers all of us, if you walk with Jesus this morning. But no matter the context, no matter the backstory of the individual, the root of walking away is always rebellion. It's always rebellion. Whether it's Before we come to Jesus, it's rebellion. Whether it's after we walk away from Jesus, it's all about rebellion. Whether saved and far from God or unsaved and far from God. We're all born rebels because of sin, because of being fallen. We're all born rebels. We don't have to be taught this. You all have, those of you who have kids or been around kids, you understand this to be the absolute truth. problem is we all still have a rebel heart 
within us, even as believers, even now while sitting here in church. We have the ongoing battle between the spirit and the flesh within us. And we need to stay vigilant, examining our heart patterns so that we don't find ourselves rebelling and leaving our Father. Listen, even while sitting in church, I think that we want to make this so extreme, like, well, no, no, I'm not, I'm not rebelling, or I'm not the prodigal because I'm here, I'm, I'm here in church. Listen, we can be far from him even while sitting here this morning. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow fade, as we know is the case with a lot of things in life. It's a slow fade that starts in the heart, which includes the mind, the desire, the will. We don't know how the younger son got to where he did. We don't, we don't know the, the pattern. We don't know his heart and what took place. We don't exactly know the negative patterns in his life that eventually led him to reject his good father and desire to break his relationship with him. But I know my heart better than anyone's, and I don't think my heart is too drastically different than yours. And so let me draw from what happened with my, in, within my life to flesh out potential rebellious patterns, heart patterns that lead to destruction. So I've got a list of five rebellious heart patterns that I know took place in my heart. As I look back and over the years, and I look back and I realize what took place in my life and, and, and those patterns that be, began to become a thing and, and took root and led me to where I ended up. Number one, you love the world more than God. You love the world more than God. I'm not talking about loving lost people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the mindset of the world, the focus of the world, what they think you think, what they pursue, you pursue. How they live, you live. You have an over-infatuation with the world and an avoidance for the things of the Lord. I saw this so clearly in my life. The world, if you will, became more attractive to me than God himself. You've forsaken your first love. It's certainly what I did. Number two, you doubt God's goodness. You just straight up doubt that God is a good father, as we just sang this morning. You think God is a cosmic killjoy. Sound familiar? Like it's the oldest trick in the book. Literally. This is, this is how Satan deceived Eve. This is how it all began. Oh, God's hold, withholding something from you. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't really love you like he says he does because he hasn't given you everything. Like he's told you not to do something. It's the oldest trick in the book, quite literally. God is somehow keeping fun stuff from you. Number three, you think sin is harmless. You, you think sin is harmless. Oh, so dangerous. So dangerous. You minimize, you justify, you rationalize the sin in your life. A little sin's not a big deal. I can handle it. You think a little sin is not a big deal. You can manage God and the world. You got one foot here and, and one foot there. Man, I did this all through high school, and it was absolutely exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting because can't, it can't be done. 
living, if you will, in two worlds. So don't be deceived like I was. Don't be deceived like I was. Number four, you don't understand true freedom. You don't understand true freedom. I was, being, I was tired of being told as a Christian all the things I couldn't do. I, I grew up in a very good family. We didn't do certain things. Actually, that was my definition of a Christian. A Christian is somebody who doesn't do a whole list of things, right? And that's what makes you a Christian. That's what identifies you as a Christian. I was tired of being told as a Christian all the things I couldn't do, which I think is the epitome of being a rebel. And I just stand before you this morning and say this. Freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. This was, this was my favorite lie. Like, I want to be free. I want to be free to do whatever I want with whomever, however, wherever. That's what I want to do. I want to be free. I'm so tired of this, this, this oppressive religious understanding, and I can't do this. Man, I'm looking at the world, and they look like they're having a whole lot of fun. Like, I, I want that. Listen, freedom is not doing whatever you want. Freedom is becoming what you were created to be. That's the reality. Freedom, freedom is becoming what you were created to be. Freedom is experiencing what Jesus died for you to experience, which is life abundant. It took me a long time to realize that. Number five, our last one here, you want the gift and not the gift giver. You want the gift. You want what God gives. You just don't really want him. We can all fall into this pattern very easily. Back in the day, it was, you know, give me my fire insurance. Don't think there's really such a thing anyway, so I can enjoy the world. In other words, let me abuse your grace so I can love my sin. I'm good. I said a prayer. I came to Jesus. I know him. I'm good to go. Now let me go enjoy my, my sin. Rebellious heart patterns that we're all capable of exhibiting. But as I mentioned already, there are two sons, right? There are two sons in this story. We don't just talk about the older, we just talk about the older one. Uh, we don't talk about the older one too much. Forgive me. The really bad one gets all the attention. So look at verses 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, we're certainly jumping ahead here, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat then I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Awfully kind of him to get some detail to exactly what the younger son was doing. You killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, son, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now found. Like what is wrong with you? The older son, the older son is a metaphor for the Pharisees here, law-abiding and morally pure. In actuality, it can be argued, I think, that the older son is maybe the truer focus of the parable. Again, we, we tend to skip over him. The potentially more dangerous of the two characters to be. Why? Because the older son thinks he's in the right In his mind, he's not just the good son. Man, he's the best son. And there's the problem, isn't it? If the younger son's sin is his badness, the eldest son's sin is his goodness. Jesus, what he is doing is helping us to understand what sin really is. He's clarifying what sin is. Sin is not just doing what is wrong. We, we get that, right? Sin is not just doing what is wrong. Sin is also doing what is right wrongly, if you will. It's doing what is right with the wrong motive. Doing it for your glory. Doing it for our glory and not God's. We can do good and be good and still sin. Something I don't think we really wrestle with enough within the context of our life and examine our li- in our hearts. We can do good and be good and still sin, which is, in the end is no different than the lifeless religious leaders in this story. That's exactly what they did. They understood what God wanted from them, and they did those things. But man, they did not do them correctly, if you will. It was all about them. It wasn't about glorifying God. It wasn't about, you know, you know making him look good in the context of, his, of their life. It was about making themselves look good. So similar to the younger son, let me parse out potential religious heart patterns that we can see the older son exhibit. Six religious heart patterns taken from the passage. Number one, your identity is in what you do. As a son or daughter of the living king, your identity is in what you do. We see that in verse 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed one of your commands. Obeying commandments and working hard for Jesus. You, You find yourself keeping a running list of all the good you do and really ultimately just forget whose you are. You don't understand the the concept that, man, it's not about what you do first and foremost that makes you a believer in Jesus Christ or or, or creates that fellowship and that relationship with Jesus Christ. It's who you are. It's what Christ has done. It's Christ within you. It's that sealed and and, and totally uh, uh, kept and permanent identity in Jesus Christ. So number one, you identify your identity as what you do more than in who you are. Number two, you think God owes you. You think God owes you. I love referring back to the music we just sang. 
If you never did, a, ever did anything else, you're good. God doesn't owe us anything. Because of your obedience and service to God, there are automatic expectations involved. Like, I do my part. I did my part, God. Now you do yours. I think this is seen maybe going off script here a little bit in the context of parenting. I know we've struggled with this. Lord, we, we, have, we have served you. We love you. Man, we're, we're bringing up our children in the Lord. We're teaching them. So we did our part. When are you going to do your part? Man, there's no guarantee, is there? We're simply called to do what God has called us to do and trust him. Number three, you think you know better than God. You think you know better than God. Verse 30. But when this son of yours came and he has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Like, how dare you? Let me give you some color commentary about what your son did. Do you know what he did? Do you know what he did with the money that you gave him? Uh, you think you know better than God. You play God by deciding who is worthy of God's love and forgiveness. We've all done it. We've all done it. Number four, you're bored with God. You're bored with God. Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You're bored with God. You're disinterested with grace and ultimately his presence. He's like, son, what is, what is wrong? Like, I, I, you've been with me the entire time. You have me. It's not enough for the older son. Number five, you're unamazed by for, forgiveness. Reference this already a little bit. The gospel doesn't move you. You are not impressed by the dead being raised to life. God, forgive us in this. We come, become so complacent in this. Number six, to repeat myself from the first list, you want the gift and not the gift giver. Literally no different than the younger son. Two lists that I hope are causing you for our last point this morning to examine your life. To examine your life. Use the parable as a mirror to reflect the real you. That's the power and point of Scripture. You, you hold in your hands a revelation from God about God so that when we read it, our true condition and desperate state of being is laid bare before ourselves and God himself. So let me encourage you to consider three potential responses. Maybe you need to do one of these or all three of them. I'll leave that to the Holy Spirit to tell you. Number one, maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to repent. Verses 17 to 24. Look at how the younger son repented. But when he came to himself, in other words, he got honest about his reality. He got honest. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He was miserable. I will arise and go to my father. Love that line. 
I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's godly sorrow. He just wasn't sorry about the situation he was in, but he understood that sin, first and foremost, our sin, first and foremost, is against God the Father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He had a right view of himself. He began to understand things clearer. And he said, treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. He drew near to the father. And what does James say will happen when we do that? He'll draw near to us. And I don't think that means he's far off and he's going to meet us halfway. I think it's a realization when we draw near to God, we find him immediately. He's there. And we have the understanding that in our coming to him, man, we know he's been there the whole time. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, not anger or resentment or disinterest, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The younger son may have had the proper view of himself, but he didn't have a proper understanding of the father. He thought he had him figured out. He thought he understood how he was going to respond to him returning and and repenting and asking for forgiveness. And he couldn't have been further from the truth. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father did what? Said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father closed his son, not as a hired hand, but as his forever beloved child. What a response. And listen, repentance is a beautiful thing. Repentance is an incredibly beautiful thing. It's a gift, really. I believe that God bestows that on us, gives that ability to us to repent. But man, it's amazing. But I'm saddened that we as the church as a whole too often have such a poor understanding of repentance. I think we far too often think of it as a funeral more than a celebration like what we see in these stories. Chapter 15, verse 7, previous to this story. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, I tell you, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus doesn't repeat himself again in this prodigal story. No, all he does, he simply illustrates it for us to help us understand. It's not a funeral, it's a celebration. That's what repentance is all about. Repentance is immense joy for the Father and all of heaven. Then why is it too many times misery for us? Why why is that the case? Like, oh my word, we're talking about repentance again. Oh, like sackcloth and ashes and let's let's get all that and let's, let's drag this out and all of that. Repentance is good news. Repentance restores, it reconciles, sets free. It's remorseful. Please hear me on this. It's absolutely remorseful. It's godly sorrow, but it's joyful. 
It's joyful. I, I, I was challenged with this just this past week. I'm walking out of our church office, and there were some ladies at the front desk. Our women's director was talking to a lady, and it turned out that lady just repented of her sin and became a believer in Jesus Christ. And as a pastor, I've been around the block long enough, have a little bit of cynicism in me, and I was like, oh, really? It, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> I have enough self-control. But I battle that. And why was I not automatically responding in joy? I actually quoted this since I was in this passage. That there's a celebration taking place in heaven. And I'm thankful they're doing it better than I tend to do it when someone comes to know Jesus Christ. But listen, repentance is not simply a one-time deal. It's a lifestyle. And maybe some of you need to do some turning away from even right now. As I've already mentioned, both sons are lost in this parable. They both need to repent. And as you've stepped into the story, let me ask you, do you need to? Do you need to turn from your badness? There may be someone sitting here right now who is exactly like I was sitting in high school in previous years and who, man, one person the night before, a different person sitting here in the church. Do you need to turn from your badness, your rebellion against the Father, or maybe turn from your goodness? Maybe that's more of us. Your religious work's done for yourself. Examine your life. Examine your heart. Now, the interesting thing about this story, there's really no ending, is there? Did the oldest son repent? (laughs) Man, I hope so. We don't know. But what we do know, and he was given the chance to do so just like we are given the chance today. So that's the first thing, it's to repent. And maybe you need to find rest. Again, love the song that we sang this morning. Maybe you need to find a rest. I think more than good sleep, most people want genuine rest. Please, I'll take good sleep. I'm getting old enough that that's few and far between. But I think at the end of the day, man, we just want genuine rest. Rest from strife, struggle, worry, work, pressure of life, the grind. We're certainly going to have it completely someday whether that's when we enter heaven or when Jesus returns. But that rest, please hear me today, church, that rest is available right here, right now. And it certainly began at the moment of your salvation. It starts through the work Jesus has done for us. He worked perfectly so we can rest. You know this passage, Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30 says this. Let me just read it over you. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus calls to all of us, 
quite literally. He calls to all of us and says, religion and rebellion are tiring and dead ends, but I'm not. So simply just come to me. Stop and be with me. Rest. So maybe you need to do just that. But lastly, I think we all need to rejoice. We need to rejoice. As in rejoice in the gospel. The gospel is altogether something the world had never seen or or could never imagine or create on their own. This is why Jesus' message was counted sacrilege and offensive. It was a complete departure from what people had known about religion, law, and how to come near to God. The father, well, the most important character in this story, puts the radical message of the gospel on full display. The gospel is an unexpected response to us. Joy, compassion, love, instant restoration and reconciliation. No hoops to jump through, no wrath and anger. Man, the father did none of that. Man, he didn't say, you got, you got, to, you got to tell me everything you did. And are you, bad? I mean, are, are you really, really for sure? Done? No, he just absolutely embraced them in joy and compassion and love. The gospel is an undeserved offer to us. Free gift of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Bought for, provided by the father. We, like the son, don't do anything but receive it. Bring nothing but regrets, scars, and filth. But the Father cleans us up and clothes us. And all we have ultimately is him. Lastly, the gospel is an abundant existence now and an incredible future later. He gives rest, no more running from or working for. The Father doesn't say, man, it's time to get work and pay off your debt. Instead, it's quite literally a feast. It's a feast of fellowship. It's a feast of intimacy. It's a feast of joy. And it's only a taste of what's to come in eternity. So as I close, repent, rest, and rejoice. Maybe one of those, maybe all of them. If you are his, man, I pray, are you listening to the spirit at work within you? And if you're not his, do you sense his work on you? I pray that you will be sensitive to that. In either case, man, I challenge you this morning, arise and go to the Father. Amen?